As I mentioned earlier, we are into week 12, uh, believe it or not, in our study of Philippians, and we are halfway home. So, but it does speed up, and I, I've been saying that, and I know everyone laughs, but it's, it will speed up, but we've slowed down for a little bit, because it's going to take us three weeks to get through these four verses. It just, I tried, I really did try. This stuff is just too good, too powerful, too true to uh, just kind of gloss over in a couple of sentences. So, the verses 7 through 11 of chapter 3 that we're in this week uh, is going to take us kind of last week, this week, and next week to kind of get through because there's some really profound theological stuff here that I want to deal with and I want to talk about. So we're into week 12. If you haven't been with us for any of these weeks, that's all right. We're not really building on each other. The, it kind of, you, you kind of just pick it up as, as we go. So you're not missing uh, too much to be lost or anything like that. We'll get you all caught up to speed because the, the book of Philippians is a powerful letter, and I, I keep telling everybody, it's, it's really one of the letters that in the Bible, the scripture, that, that God has used to sort of kind of turn my life upside down the most, because it's a really powerful picture. It's written for this group of new, young, believing Christians, and, and Paul's sort of giving them his best. He's sort of sowing in them in a way that he doesn't sow into any other churches that he planted. He's not writing to address a specific problem or struggle or theological heresy. He's just basically saying, look, I love you, and here's the best I have to offer. The first two chapters are built around two things. They're built around humility, and they're built around unity. The call for the church to live in humility and to live in unity as they pursue a common mission, to act and think and love like Jesus. Okay, Paul's saying that if you live according to this, if you do this together and in harmony and humility, you become an effective tool for the world. The church becomes an effective tool to kind of push the gospel mission. And so he's challenging the church to live this way because they're under intense pressure. They're living in poverty. Persecution that they face is very real every day. And it was very easy to, when things get tough to sort of turn and take care of yourself, right? I'm going to make sure I get mine covered at all costs and kind of pursue this. But Paul says, you know, live in this way. So he goes through two chapters in kind of a really kind of glossing over, very shallow way. I'm just kind of covering those things. Go through two whole chapters to talk about that. But in chapter 3, he makes a really intentional move. He begins to close this letter out. And he says, finally, my brothers. It's going to take him two full chapters to write his conclusion. But he basically says, listen, I want you to hear these last things right now. And he begins to shift from this idea of humility and unity to this sort of theological, more doctrinal stance, foundation that he wants the Philippians to hold on to. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago and even last week, there are two things that we take for granted that we have to understand in order to really grasp why Paul is laying this theological foundation that's really important. And the first is that good teaching was really hard to find or hard to come by. And good teaching not being entertaining, right? I talked about this at length a couple of weeks ago. Not, not being entertaining. When we think about good teaching in our kind of context today, we think about entertaining. Boy, you know, he or she, they are a good teacher, meaning they didn't put me to sleep or they told funny stories or, you know, they use a lot of videos or whatever, and, and they're a good teacher. But when I say good teaching, I'm talking about solid, theologically sound teaching, good teaching. And it was really hard to find. There wasn't a, a Bible that you could just pull out of your desk drawer when somebody came in and said something crazy and you kind of measured up and go, well, that's not what the Bible says. These were first century Christians. All they had were the letters of the apostles and the apostles' teaching. So they couldn't just sort of turn to Scripture and say, well, that doesn't jive really with what I'm familiar with, so it sounds a little little heretical. I mean, they just didn't have that luxury. Good teaching was really hard to find, so they, they, were, they were clinging very tightly to the words of Paul and the other apostles. And bad teaching, right, or theologically corrupt teaching ran rampant. I mean, it was everywhere, because in this sort of Greek culture, the ideal was pull bits and pieces from everything and form whatever worked for you, your own picture of 
religion or your own picture ideas. So yeah, if you believe in Jesus, that's great. But also, you can believe in this and you can believe in that and this sun god can do this. And so it was a conglomeration of religions where everything was okay. And so people would come all the time saying, oh, you're a follower of Jesus. Well, so am I. And, and you know what else it really means to follow Jesus is this and you've got to do this. And so heretical teaching was happening all over the place. And people would become traveling in these towns and they were carrying bits and pieces from this into that. And so Paul was always writing letters trying to correct heretical or bad theology in terms of people's teaching. If you read most of his letters, the ones of the Corinthians and the Galatians and the Ephesians, all those letters are written to correct specific theological heresies. Well, Philippians doesn't really do that, but he does have this little section in chapter 3 where he says to be on your guard against these kind of false teachers. And so that's kind of where we picked up a few weeks ago. In verses 7 through 11 that we're going to be today is a response to that. All right, so these things were running rampant. Good teaching was hard to find. And having a baseline or a foundation of theological truth against what we could measure all other things was really, really important. So that's kind of what Paul's doing. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn to chapter 3 in the book of Philippians. We're going to be in verse 7 through 11. We're going to look a few verses earlier just to kind of keep it in context so we read Scripture in its context. Um, and then we'll just kind of dive into it so, and see what happens. Philippians chapter 3, um, I'm going to back up and read from uh, about 5 all the way down through 11 just so you get the full picture of kind of what's um, unfolding there and then uh, we will we'll go from there. So let's take a moment, let's pray and then uh, we'll open God's word together. Lord, we thank you that your word is um, living and active. God, that it's, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. God, that it is, it is true and it is right and it is real. And God, we pray that as we open it today, you would teach us. Lord, we know that only you can reveal truth to us. And so, God, we pray that you would teach us through your word. God, that you would help us lay a, a theological baseline of sorts, um, of truth. Take a moment in your own heart and just invite God to uh, teach you something new this morning. Maybe a, a, something you've heard in a new way. Just ask God to do something new in your heart. Pray for someone beside you, even if you don't know them. Just whisper that God would move in their life. I say this every week. Just be in the habit of praying for other people. God, we pray that as we open your word, you would teach us in a very profound way, in a way that sort of rattles our foundations and uh, reminds us of some really powerful truths. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read this, and then we'll just kind of work through it together, starting back at verse 5. All right, so Paul's kind of writing this, and he's changing directions, and he's reminding this group of Philippians that they're, the only thing they have to put confidence in is Christ. Okay, they can't put confidence in themselves or their abilities or any of those things. And he basically says, look, if, if anybody had that ability to put confidence in their own way of living, then it's me. All right, it's me, Paul, because of how I was raised and, and my background and what I did. He says this in verse 4. I have myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I, Paul, have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ 
the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death as so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul says, if anybody had the ability to live correctly, to live according to this right moral code, it's me. Because what Paul's warning everybody about is that there were a group of people coming in to the cities, these, these guys called the Judaizers, and they were teaching Christians that if you were going to really follow Christ, you also had to obey all the ritual mosaic codes. So you had to be circumcised, you had to do the food lodge, you had to keep every piece of the law and also believe in Jesus. And Paul's basically writing, kind of combating that theology, saying, no, it's not about what you do. It's not about living correctly. It's not about living the law and Jesus. It's just about Jesus. Jesus came as the fulfillment of the law because we never could live that perfectly. He said, and if anybody thought that they could live that way, it's me. I was born in the right family. I was born under the right banner. I lived the right way. I was educated the right way. I kept the law. I was so passionate for the law that I persecuted the church. I was passionate and I was faultless. I kept it to a T and I was empty and I was dead and it didn't work for me. So he said, whatever the world considered my profit, right? Whatever the world said I could do, all of my birthrights and savings and strongholds and all those things, I consider a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus and being found in him. Now, in this section of 3 through 11, there's really three major theological truths that we're trying to hang on to. The first one is knowing Christ, and we talked about it last week. And we found out there's really three things that we have to understand when it comes to knowing Christ, right? We've got to understand um, that knowing Christ is intimate and personal. There's a relationship there, and we're, we're called to have that sort of intimate relationship. We've got to understand that loss is gain. So when we surrender our lives to Christ, we don't lose things for the sake of just losing him. We actually gain, as Paul says, this, this knowing Christ and being found in him, which we're going to talk about this week, that loss really is gain in a spiritual sense. And the way this intimate personal relationship with Christ, we have to understand the third thing is this lordship of Jesus. Understanding that when we surrender our lives to Christ, we make him literally Lord of everything in our lives, out of our lives. Jesus is Lord. And what we proclaim when we say that, that God, I lay everything down because you are just that big. We talked about we have to have those understandings to know Christ. Well, the second piece of this puzzle is the idea of being found in Christ. And that's what we're going to look at this week. Because it goes hand in hand with this idea of knowing Christ. And there's a few things that we have to understand of what it means to be found in Christ. And these are some basic theological principles that in on some way all of us are familiar with. But I think it's really important that we kind of rediscover as we go. Because this baseline of theological truth by which we can measure all other teaching and things is foundationally important uh, for us as followers of Christ. Because good theology prevents bad theology. All right, good theology prevents bad theology. This baseline is really important. So here's a few of the things that we've got to hang on to about what it means to be found in Christ, all right, because this is, is pretty powerful stuff. So Paul says this. He says, what is more, everything, I consider everything a loss compared, everything in my life, everything in the world, everything that this world tells me I have going for me and that I can do and that I have the power to accomplish, I consider it all a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of simply knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord, right? We talked about the Lordship of Christ, um, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. What does it mean to be found in Christ? Well, there's a couple of things that I think stand out. And the first one is this. In order to be found, right, we have to understand that we're lost, 
Now, that sounds really simple, and there actually is a really simple kind of principle at play, and that's simply this, that if we are going to be found, we have to be lost, right? We can't be found if we're not lost. Now, our lostness is not contingent on the fact that we know we're lost. You can very much be lost and have no idea that you are lost. And that principle works spiritually. We can very much think that we have our worlds together, our lives together, things are happening, and very much be spiritually lost at the same time. See, the idea of being lost is a metaphor for a condition that we have as people. It's a metaphor for the condition that we have as humanity. The Bible is kind of full of this picture of the fact that we are lost, that we are sinful. Being lost is a condition. It's a state of being. It's not something that we fall in and out of. We are utterly and totally lost, sinful, and hopeless. That's the Bible's picture of this idea of lostness, right? It's a word that I've sort of created. But the idea is that it's a state of our being. We are lost. We don't like to admit it or talk about it, but it's the truth, right? It doesn't change that fact. And it all revolves around this idea of sin. And nobody likes to talk about sin. Sin is very unsexy to kind of talk about. In fact, very seldom in our churches do we hear sermons sort of preached on this idea of sin because it doesn't draw anybody in from the parking lot. I mean, you don't put it on your marquee and you have this kind of sign that says, hey, preaching today, Trump Prater, sins of the sinful sinner. And everyone's like, I got to hear this. This is going to be great. Nobody likes to preach about it because it's sort of like Debbie Downer. Like nobody really wants to talk about it. But let let me tell you something. And this is an incredibly important statement, all right? And here's what I want you to hear. There is no more important thing that we can understand from Scripture than our understanding of sin. More important than anything else that we glean from Scripture is understanding of sin. And here's why. Because without an understanding of sin, we can't understand our own relationships with each other, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with God, the Bible, Scripture, the very nature of Jesus Christ himself. Without an understanding of sin... None of those things work. None of those things work. So we've got to understand sin in order to understand this picture. And our lostness, the fact that we are lost, is the theological movement of the fact that we are sinful, totally and utterly sinful. Now there's a couple of principles about sin that we've got to understand as we talk about it, right? And the first is is really, we can look at it all through scripture, the first is really this, is that we all have it, sin. We've all got it. There's no way around it. We can look at it any way you want to. Romans talks about it. Ephesians talks about it. We are all totally sinful. Every single one of us has it. Whether you like it or not, whether you think you've mastered your life or not, you are sinful. We have sin. In fact, 1 John tells us that if any of us think we don't have it, we're a liar. We make God out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. So we've kind of got to get past that really quickly, right? We like to think that kind of systematically we are all pretty good right? And we just do a few things wrong. The Bible actually gives us the inverse of that, right? We are completely and totally lost and hopeless and sinful and can't do anything good. The only thing good is God. So we are all totally sinful. We are all lost. Like it or not, it's just true. It's our condition. It's a state of being. We can do nothing about it. So we all have it. Principle one about sin. Principle two is the result of that sin is death. Not sickness, not illness, not struggle, not hurt, not difficulty. Absolute and total death. Romans talks about it again. We can look at it in any number of places. Our sin only leads us to one place, and that is death. Both physical death and eternal separation from God, hell, death, period. Now, this is why nobody likes to preach on sin. Because there's no good way to sort of sugarcoat those truths. You have a condition that has made you lost. 
You are absolutely and totally hopeless and helpless, and you are dead because of it. That's the picture. In order to be found, in order to understand what it means to be found, we have to understand that we're lost. And you would be shocked how many people I talk to that don't believe, that don't believe that they're lost. Right? And not just people that are kind of out there in the world and never been to church, but, but people that make up our churches, that believe inherently, they've got it going on okay enough to direct and run their own life. The Bible tells us your lostness is a condition, and it's a condition of death. Sin, first big principle, theological understanding, foundation that Paul's laying. In order to be found in Christ, you have to understand that you're lost, right? The second thing Paul kind of lifts out, or we kind of see lifted out in this idea of being found, um, is that being found is not something that you can do. It's a passive thing. The very nature of being found means that somebody else is doing the action, So if you imagine yourself being lost out there somewhere in the woods or whatever, you can't find yourself. We like to think that that's true, we can't, but the reality is we can't. In order to be found, someone else has to find you. Spiritually, it's exactly the same. And what Paul's referring to here is the move of Christ, that we can't be found. In other words, we can't rescue ourselves from our own lostness. It's a passive state, and grace begins here. Grace is the picture that God takes initiative with humanity when humanity can't rescue itself. There's nothing in the world that humanity can do to free itself from its own lostness, from its own hopelessness, from its own helplessness, from its own sinfulness. And so God in his infinite, amazing, ridiculous, extravagant love rescues humanity through the person of Jesus Christ. Being found is something that only God can do for you. You will never be able to be found yourself. It's grace. It's grace. A couple of pictures here about grace that I want you to understand. Grace is really the idea of God's sort of undeserved favor and unmerited love. I mean, that's really the picture of grace. And a couple of principles that kind of coincide with our understanding of sin is that, is that grace first begins with God's extravagant, ridiculous love. So my favorite picture of this comes out of the book of, of Ephesians. I'm just going to read it to you real quick. And it says this, But because of God's great love for us, Ephesians chapter 2, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we are dead in our sin. So because because of God's great and extravagant love for us, while we were still sinners, sinful, steeped in our lostness and our condition, right? God made us alive in Christ. This is the ultimate picture of God's grace. It begins with his extravagant love, not out of his obligation or because God had to, but because God's amazing, powerful love. That's where grace begins. Grace begins with God's love. The second principle is there is nothing you can do or ever will do to earn it. Now, most of us would kind of somewhat understand this, but we live in a different way. We live as if we somehow can earn God's favor or God's merit. And our churches are filled with people that go around doing things, really good things, basically to try and fill their spiritual bank account so that when they die, they know they've done some bad things, but God can't overlook all the good things they've done had a conversation with someone about two months ago that really kind of boiled down to this idea that if I just do enough things, that eventually God will have to overlook the bad things because my bank account or my kind of mound of goodness will shadow that. We believe that. We don't like to say it out loud, but we do. So when we have all these kind of sinful struggles and hurts, we try and cover them up with deeds, with action. 
The reality is that we're theologically bankrupt from start to finish. We are totally lost. No amount of doing anything will get us there. Ephesians 2 goes on to say that grace is God's move in us. That we can't earn it or work for it or inherit it because of what we do. It's only because of God's move. We run around spiritually thinking that if we just fill our life with enough kind of morally good things, right, then somehow we feel better about ourselves and God can overlook the garbage that we're hiding and won't tell anyone. We are totally and utterly lost and being found isn't something that you can't do. And this is kind of where Paul's setting up these boundaries, these foundations. He's saying, listen, no matter what anybody comes in and tells you, you are not good. You cannot do it on your own. You are lost and hopeless and broken. And it's only because God's initiative that you are rescued and that you are found. This is what Paul says. Because the world said that, Paul, you can do this, man. You were born into the right family. You lived the right way. You kept that law. And Paul says, all of that left me empty. And I traded it all for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ and being rescued or being found in him. So we are lost. And being found is not something we can do. The third thing that kind of comes out of all this is the fact that we have a new identity. Being found in Jesus means that his identity becomes ours. We are encompassed by who Christ is. That when we put faith in Jesus Christ and God rescues us, we are now found in him. Our identity becomes him and is because of him. Being found in Christ means that we have this brand new identity. Now, an identity is an interesting thing because we're taught something totally different culturally. We're taught that our identity is is the sum of or kind of the um, response to what we do. We are what we do. We're defined by our workplace. We're defined by our jobs. We're defined by our relationship with our spouses and our kids. My identity is made up in, in what I do, right? So if I make my boss happy and I, I meet all those things and, and I make my spouse happy and I do some, some stuff for my kids and they're, and they're doing good and I'm still kind of pursuing a few things that I want to pursue, well, man, my life is worth something, right? Because my identity is made up by what I do. Culturally, that's the way we live, man. The first thing we ask each other, what do you do? Well, I'm a banker. Well, now all of a sudden your identity is that, right? You begin to live into that. Well, I'm this. The converse is true. What are you? Well, People may be broken, or I'm divorced, or I'm struggling. My identity becomes wrapped up in failure. The reality is that our identities are tied to what we do. And we transfer this spiritually, too. We live in that same kind of way that says, God, if I just do enough of that, then my identity can be kind of in the fact that I'm trying really hard. And we tell that God all the time, God, I know that, that I've blown it, but I'm working hard at it. I'm working. You, sh- you see this? I mean, you see I'm trying to make it work? God, I'm reading more Bible. I'm spending more time at church. I've even started giving more. Because our identity, we want it to be worth something to ourselves and to God. The reality in the Christian life is that when we're being found in Christ, we exchange our old self for a new self. We've been made completely new. Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians, he says that when we meet Jesus, we become this new creation. The old is gone completely and totally, and the new has come, and the new is made up in Christ. It means that your identity is not made up in what you're worth, but it was substituted by what God did for you. Substitution. Your identity now is Christ. It is in Christ. It is because of Christ. That you no longer have to worry about your victory, your overcoming, your dealing, your things, your stuff, your life. But it becomes Christ in you. 
and we have this new identity. But so many of us, we say we believe it, but we don't live into it because our identity is still wrapped up in me. What I feel like, my happiness, my joy, my things, my stuff, and we're pursuing emptiness over and over and over again. Being found in Christ means that all of who I am is discovered in who he is. And that's what Paul's saying. My old identity, a Pharisee, a Benjaminite, all the things that I've done right, all the ways that I live for the religious institution. Now, Paul's not some horrible human. Paul was the perfect picture of religiousness. I mean, he lived it to the core. If anybody was pious and religious and right and believed in God and pursued everything for God, it was Paul. This is how he lived until Jesus knocked him on his face and said, you're broken. And Paul said, the moment I met Jesus, I realized that my entire life was bankrupt. And I was lost even though I was pursuing God. Most of us think that lostness exists out there with people that have never heard of or never met Jesus and they live in some foreign country. The reality is that lostness exists and penetrates the halls of all of our churches. It's people that are well-meaning saying, God, I will do things for you. I will create my identity in what I do for you. I'm the person that serves. I'm the person that makes the coffee. The person that holds the doors, that shows up and turns on all the lights. I'm the person that leads nine groups. I live church. I am church. And we fill our lives with stuff trying to cover the void of our own brokenness. But Paul says your identity is in Christ. Being found in him means that People see Jesus and not you. And it's not just that people, your new identity is what people see, but your new identity is what you have to see in you. The last thing that I really see at play here comes out of that section, and I'll wrap everything up with this. It says that uh, I consider everything a rubbish, we talked about what that meant last week, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteous my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, and this righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. What that means is this. I can't do anything for it. The righteousness I have is because God has given it to me. It's my new identity. And the piece of that puzzle I think that is really important that kind of ties all these things together is this, is that we have to live like we believe this. Like most of you sitting out there would say, Trev, you know what? I agree with you, man. We are sinful and broken. And it's only because of God's grace that we are anything. And I do have a new identity in Christ. And we can articulate all those things and we can say all those things, but we do not live like we believe them. We don't live in the peace and the assurance that our righteousness and our joy comes from knowing Christ. We still work and we still pursue and we still chase and we still try with everything that we have. And we pay this sort of lip service to God that says, God, I believe these truths, but we won't allow them to be echoed in the corners of our hearts. We try and create our own identity. We try and perform for each other. We wear our little mask to church to show everybody that our family's perfect. We hold hands walking to the door when we fought and screamed at each other in the car in the parking lot. Because I want to put on something else that displays to the world my identity is something else. Being found in Christ means, Jesus, I lay it all down. Every little piece of it. You are my identity. I'm broken and I'm lost and only you can find me. And I want to live like I believe that truth. Because you've called me a new creation. This morning, you may be here, and you may have heard these truths, sin and grace and identity and redemption and rescue over and over and over again. But what would it take for you to actually find your identity in Christ and say, Jesus, I will lay down my desire and my way in the pursuit of my life for you to actually believe that I'm a new creation and not just pay lip service to it, but believe that you have made me absolutely, totally
What would that look like for you? I want you to think about those things as we close our time in worship. To say, God, what would it look like to be found in you? All of me wrapped up in who you are. It's easy things to say, but it's really difficult to live. Take a look at this video as we close our time and then wrap everything up in worship. stand as we close in worship this morning. Let us out of death. 
penetrate our hearts, that knowing Christ and being found in Christ makes us who we are, and that we would live like we believe it. Go in peace.
Give me something, bitch. Just give me something now. 